You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I absolutely love having conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me, getting into the journey of their lives, the nitty gritty. Um, because I think it's so easy to look at other people and think, wow, look at them with their shiny accomplishments. They've got it all figured out. They've got it all. (laughs) And so in my podcast, we don't just talk about the shiny stuff, but yeah, we get to that too. Because how did they get to that? What were the steps they took? Because it's usually not a straight upward line. I hope that by listening to other people's stories, you see that you can start anywhere, that wherever your life has gone already doesn't mean it can't go somewhere else next. Um, that life is learning. And uh, give yourself a shit ton more compassion and you can, you can do whatever it is you want to. I really, really, really believe that. But yeah, it takes um, commitment and work and stuff. <laughs> so today's guest is Alicia Fernandez Miranda and her memoir, My What If Year, just came out. It is the first book from Zibby. I don't know if you know Zibby. She, um, Zibby Books, they just started a publishing house. This is their first book. I think that Zibby is amazing. She has all sorts of amazing stuff going on. Um, Zibby Owens, I think it is. Why did I forget her name right when I was saying that? Because I didn't mean to talk about Zibby. But anyway, so exciting. We're going to get into <laughs> what inspired Alicia to have a what if year? And what did her life look like that before that? Because she really had it all. She realized she did have everything she wanted. And yet she was feeling miserable. And so we talk about how she got there (laughs) to having it all and feeling miserable and what she did to move through that, which led to writing this book. All right, let's get into the episode. Oh, if you haven't yet, please subscribe slash follow the podcast. And leave a review. If you screenshot the review and send it to podcast at yourdryologist.com, I'll send you a little gift from my shop. Psst, make sure to shop my shop while I still do have products. I'm in the process of cleaning out the inventory. So go to shop.yourdryologist.com. All right, here we go. All right, so I love starting with, you can start earlier, but I like starting with high school years. (laughs) I feel like it's just such an interesting time of life. And that's where we can start to feel. I mean, honestly, I think it starts earlier than that. But I think the high school years, we can feel this sort of pressure of like, what am I going to be and do with the rest of my life? And who am I? And like, that's where that pressure starts to build. So what was high school like for you? And in that time, did you have any idea of this is what I'm going to do and be and this is what my life will look like? So also thank you because... I'm in my 40s now, so going back before high school is like, I'm not sure I could really do it. (laughs) My memory is fading me, but high school is still pretty vivid. I think that's a great place to start. But I mean, yeah, I think I had an idea of what I wanted to do and achieve since I was, I don't know, eight or nine. I have a diary from when I was nine years old that said, my goals are to win the Student of the Year Award for my elementary school and to go to Harvard. And I don't even know how I knew about Harvard. Like, Legally Blonde had not come out yet, so I couldn't have been for that reason. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't have any family that had gone to the Ivy League. My parents both went to University of Florida. But I guess I had heard about it, 
And I thought it was the best. And I was like, right, if that's the best, that's where I'm going to go. I have always been a super ambitious. Even when I was a kid, I was really ambitious. So in high school, yeah, that was like the life plan. Go to Harvard, get a great job, you know, whatever that would be. Had no idea what I wanted the job to be at all. At different points, I was interested in marine biology. Harvard is not an ideal place to study marine biology, but (laughs) that didn't matter. Um, And for a while, I was super into magazine journalism. I was part of the teen people, teen news team. They had like a teenage news squad back in the late 90s. And I was part of that. And I was very, you know, this was like the days of like where glossy magazines were just the most wonderful thing that you could be a part of. And I loved them. And so I wanted to do that until, funnily enough, I did an internship at a magazine and then was like, oh my God, I don't ever want to work at a magazine. This seems terrible. But did you do the internship while you're still in high school? Yes. My senior year of high school, you have to go do like a work experience. Oh, wow. In high school. I worked at Ocean Drive Magazine, which is like a lifestyle magazine. It's mostly ads. I think it was mostly ads and is still mostly ads. Big, glossy pages. And I was their intern. I wasn't even 18 yet, but they would like give me all these invitations to parties. The glamorous side of it was amazing. But people seemed very unhappy in their jobs. And there was, you know, this was well before the kind of dying days of print journalism. But there was just a lot of dissatisfaction. And there was a woman who I worked for who actually said to me once, whatever you do, don't ever become a professional journalist because this is the worst job you could ever do. So it was not a rousing endorsement. Um, But I kind of didn't care. I was like, I have all these options ahead of me. I just need to be successful. need to go to Harvard. Then everything's going to work out. That's the most important thing. I just need to be successful. (laughs) Yeah, it's so easy. I just need to be successful. But you know, I am... my, my dad is an immigrant. He was born in Cuba and immigrated to the U.S. in the 60s along with many other Cubans. And I think I always grew up with that kind of like first American-born generation immigrant mentality, like, you know, education is the most important thing. That's what's going to protect you from all the shocks of the world that you can't possibly predict. And this feeling that like everything could be taken away at any moment, so you better protect yourself from that. And And for me that was the path to do it. It was like never in doubt that I was going to be successful, even though I had no idea what that was going to mean for me. I just knew that was what I had to do. And so did you end up getting into Harvard? I did. Did you go to Harvard? Harvard. I went went to Harvard. Yep. I had a really true, I mean, it was truly an amazing four years. Like I, my eyes were open to this world that I never knew existed. I learned a lot about school, but I learned more about like life and people. And it was incredible. I had kind of access to this network and this whole other possibility of like what the world could be, which was not something that growing up in like suburban Miami, I had ever really seen before. And at the same time, I felt, you know, a huge amount of pressure. Like I had been so used to being, you know, the the best at the things that I was doing. And then all of a sudden I was in this like huge pond and I was no longer the best. I had like decent grades. Like I got B's after being a straight A student my whole life. Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't uh, audition for the Crimson, which was the newspapers that, you know, I wasn't the best at journalism. I even volunteered, I tried out for a volunteer dance troupe. I didn't make that, you know, all of a sudden I was like facing rejection and trying to negotiate how I could kind of re- 
kindle this idea of what it meant for me to be successful at this place where I was surrounded by, you know, violinists who were playing Carnegie Hall at 16 years old and people that whose dads were senators and moms were, you know, representatives and just this really kind of extraordinary picture of the world. So I decided to study women's studies, which, uh, made a ton of sense for me because it was like one of the only majors that didn't make you really choose like one department. So it was looked at at the time as an interdisciplinary degree, which meant that as long as you were kind of incorporating gender or women into something, you could take classes in anthropology or politics or economics or visual arts. And that worked for me because I had no, I had no idea what I wanted to do after college. And I just was like, great, I'm interested. You know, I'm a feminist. This sounds great. Like, let me study this thing. And then I can actually just continue to explore and experiment. And the other big thing that happened for me in college was that I traveled out of the U.S. for the first time. And that was completely life-changing. I The summer before I started, my aunt and uncle for my graduation had um, bought me a flight to Seville in southern Spain to go spend a couple weeks with them. There and my cousin, we were doing Spanish classes. And the first time I like hit the tarmac in Europe, I was like, right, there's this whole world I've never seen. And my driving force has got to be to go and explore it. So in college, I as soon as I kind of got the travel bug, everything I was doing was like, right, how can I travel? How can I go abroad? I studied abroad. I volunteered abroad. I basically did whatever I could. Everything I earned went into either tequila shots or plane tickets. That was big my entire life um, in college. And yeah, when it kind of came towards graduation, that was like the only thing I knew. I knew I had to be exploring the world somehow. And I needed to figure out a way to do that that was aligned with this concept I still had in my head that I had to be really successful. So yeah. So what happens next then? You So it's so funny. It's like, of course that makes sense. But in my mind, it's like, oh, people that go to these Ivy League schools, I just assume they know what, like, n- but knowing, like, that's going to change. But I still, like, assume, like, right, I'm going to be maybe this, and then that changes or whatever. But, like, so interesting that you were just like, I got to go to Harvard and work so hard, I'm sure, to get in. And then still, like, okay, <laughs> I'm here. I mean, honestly, I didn't really have a, like, there was no other plan. This is why I thought I was going to be a marine biologist and go to Harvard. I mean, that's like insane. We were, you know, like on the back bay and really we had the Charles River and you weren't allowed to swim in there because it was too (laughs) dirty. So, you know, I mean, but I think it was just this idea of like, I'm going to be the best. I had nothing planned out after that point. When I found travel, I was like, okay, I can pursue this really joyful thing speak to a joyologist, and also figure out a way to make it work within like professional success and professional context. But no, I definitely had no idea what I was doing, what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I was good at. And, you know, it's a liberal arts college. So like nobody was really forcing me to choose. The whole mantra there was like, we teach you how to learn and we teach you how to think strategically and solve problems. And then you can go do that in any field you want. And I do think in that way- Harvard- is a liberal arts college? I think it's like technically it's like a liberal <laughs> arts never... curriculum. But, you know, in the se- liberal arts in the But I guess that, that makes – I mean, yeah. I've never really thought about it because, yeah, it's just like I, I had, had never had any, you know – I never cared about education, period. 
So I had no, so it's just like, yeah, you hear about all like, oh, like him. Yeah. And I, I don't know exactly like what they even specialize. It's just like, yeah, that's, a, you have to be really smart to get in. And like, that's like all I know. I mean, like <laughs> This was like 23 years ago now, so they might've changed. But you know, you, at the time you couldn't major in pre-med, you couldn't major in law, you couldn't major in business. You didn't do like vocational subjects. You did economics or you did I mean, people who wanted to go to law school majored in whatever. And if you did pre-med, maybe you majored in biology or chemistry, and then you took certain classes to help prepare you. But the whole idea was that you're like there to learn. You know, that was like the experience, not like my dad who went to college, studied accounting because his bro- two, his two older brothers had gone to college and studied accounting and they got jobs right out of college. And so that's what he did. Like no particular passion for numbers, but that was the thing that you were going to do to get you a job. So you can imagine the conversation with him when I was like, I'm studying women's studies. He was like, right. Okay. And what are you going to do with that? And he did, I have this line in my book, but he did ask, are you going to go work in the women's studies factory? The women's studies. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, is there one of those? That sounds great. I would love to do that. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, okay. Fine. So what did you do when you were graduating? You just knew you wanted to bring travel into your life and so and be I, successful. Totally. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I I really I like really fell in love with the UK. Um I came and did some volunteer projects a couple summers of college and I was always I was like obsessed with the Spice Girls. I was in love with Princess Diana. Like it was just, you know, like that classic American anglophilia. And I went to, I did a semester abroad uh, my junior year of college in London and had the time of my life. I worked at a pub. I stayed out all night. I made friends from all over the world who were traveling and exploring and having these like fantastic experiences. And so when it was time to graduate, I was like, the only thing I know is that I want to go back to London and I need a visa to do that. And so I kind of had these two options in front of me. One was because uh, a sort of informal job interview that had been set up for me by one of my professors at the Tate Modern. So I minored in art history um, just because I really like taking art classes. And it turned out I like had enough credits at the end that that became my minor. And I thought it was fascinating. I loved going to museums. I was like really passionate about bringing people into museums that didn't normally go to museums and feel like that was their space. Uh, and I set up an interview with the head of uh, the Women's Studies kind of graduate department at the London School of Economics. And I had this day that I actually detail in my book where, you know, I sort of went to both of those meetings and the meeting at the Tate was like a complete disaster. And the meeting at the London School of Economics was like wonderful. And I had tea in a China cup and they were like, come, come study. And it's so inexpensive to get a master's in the UK versus America. So, you know, it'll be great. So I was like, perfect. I'll come over for a year on a student visa and I'll do my master's. Master's are only a year over here. And I will use that time to find a job that's going to sponsor my visa and then I can live here forever and marry a duke or something. And, you know, I mean, Prince William was like top of the list at that point, but then I would have been happy with a lesser titled royal. And I was like, that's it. That'll be perfect to have the job. I have the, that's it. That's like the life plan. So I came over to London for graduate school right after I finished uh, my degree at Harvard and I did get a job with a visa sponsorship, but I also fell in love. And my uh, now husband um, couldn't get a job with a visa sponsorship. So he was like, 
let's move to New York. Oh, so he was also... He was with me in London. That's but he like was with you with London, but he wasn't from... He wasn't from London. We were introduced by our grandmothers. Our grandmothers were neighbors in Cuba. Our dads were best friends growing up. We had never met. And his grandmother had emailed me and him right before we started at the LSE to say, oh, you're both going to the same graduate school. You should really be friends. You know, so we met up originally purely because of like to discharge. And he is your husband now. He is my husband. (laughs) Yeah. Still my husband as of today. Let's hope so when this podcast well, amazing. airs. Well, amazing. Yes, be my for husband. <laughs> people and marriages in general. Amazing, he is still your husband. But also, like that, your that is the person that you married is the person that your grandparents like. It's such a cute story. I mean, you can imagine how happy they were, and they, you know, before they they've all passed away now. But before they did, they shared great grandchildren, which was like such a cool thing. They were like best friends, and they had shared great grandchildren, which I just always thought was so. Nice and meaningful for them. Um, but okay, so, so you yeah. went to grad school with your plan is that then went I will get a job school. and I can live here forever. Exactly. But exactly, your but I fell in love. Beloved exactly. could and not. I there. did. I did get a job. I got a job uh, with a visa sponsorship. This was like pre financial crisis, so they were passing out those expat packages to anybody who wanted them, pretty much. But it was doing. Uh, kind of corporate strategy consulting, which I knew nothing about, but like everybody at Harvard seemed to go do consulting or law school or investment banking afterwards. So I like sort of knew about it. And I didn't, I had no idea what the job entailed, but it was like a big company and they were going to pay me a good salary and they were going to sponsor my visa. So that was it. Like that was the plan. And then it was derailed by love as many plans are. Um, And so I asked them to transfer my job offer to New York. And then we left London and moved to New York. But with the stipulation that like, I want, I was like, when we have the visa ability to do this, we got to come back because this is really where I want to be. So I'll do this for you now, but eventually I want to come back here. And he was okay with that. And the job offer was able to transfer to New York? The job offer transferred, but I didn't last very long there. I made it only four months. I hated that job so much. It was overwhelming and uh, just they demanded so much. There were no women in any leadership positions except one who I like overheard crying. She was just back from maternity leave and she was like still in the office at two in the morning. And, you know, it was like a very, very intense, intense place. Um, and, you know, I had been studying women's studies. I had become, you know, I guess now you would say like woke, but that was not a term we were using, but I was awakened to like what was happening in the world around me. And I wanted to do something about it. And I was doing like consulting to pharmaceutical companies on their marketing strategy. And I just hate it. I really hated it. I hated all of it. So I ended up leaving very quickly through a completely chance meeting with a college friend at a bar one night. She mentioned that she did corporate philanthropy consulting, which is basically consulting to companies to help them give their money away. And that was something I had heard about, was kind of interested in. I had written a paper on it in graduate school. And I mentioned that to her and she was like, oh, we're hiring. Come in for an interview. Um, So I did. And that kind of set me on then the next 15 years of my career was in the corporate philanthropy space and then the wider philanthropy space. So working not just with companies, but with wealthy people and families and foundations to help give away their money and working with nonprofits to raise their money. Yeah, that seems like a pretty good space to be if you're going to be like, yeah, especially like working with corporate corporations and stuff. And then, yeah, let me help you do some good in some way. Like maybe you can't change That's how you you can't change their company maybe, but like, here, let me make you feel better about (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you know what? I mean, this could be a whole other podcast because I think after spending a very long time in that field, I did get very disillusioned in a lot of ways with what these programs do. At the time, though, I really felt I was like, we are doing so much good. And we did do a lot of good. You know, these were monies that this this was money that sometimes tens of millions of dollars that companies were spending elsewhere and we were helping them channel it into things that were actually going to make a difference as opposed to, you know, with absolutely no offense meant to like the local garden club as opposed to sponsoring a table at the local garden club dinner. They could be doing all of these other things. For a long time, I really felt strongly like it was possible for companies to make money and do good for the world. And I have some reservations about that now after being in the field for a long time. But that's what my next book is about. <laughs> mm. Is it really? I, I have, I'm drafting a novel that takes place in that world. Oh. I end volume three. And it's meant to be funny and lighthearted. It's still pretty crappy. I think it'll get better at some point, but I'm in the editing phase now where I read everything I write and I'm like, ah, this is all terrible. But yeah, it does touch on some of those issues because I spent a long time in that world and uh, have a lot of thoughts about it, but best channeled probably through fiction. <laughs> no, I was like, that probably is a great way to get it out there. And I'm guessing, yeah, I mean, as with unfortunately most things, it's like a lot of things probably like are often too good to be true or like, yeah, you think you're doing good and then look under where things are really going or whatever, then maybe, oh, that's not it. And it's like, yeah, you're pro like a lot of change can happen, and but also that's a lot to take on. And so like, hey, let's funnel this into a novel <laughs> first. Well, I know, I know. And the thing is that there are a lot of wonderful people in that world, some very good friends of mine. And I, I've seen so much generosity and so much good being done. And I've also seen so many instances where it's all just – you know, some nice, it's like, what do they say? Lipstick on a pig or whatever. It's like some, you know, like a nice, a nice thing when behind, you know, the company's doing some really awful stuff. So, you know, now, or at least, you know, in, in the years leading up to me writing this book and kind of taking a step back from that field, I made it a point to only work with companies that I felt like were actually doing good work and that were actually living their values and that actually cared about a triple bottom line. So profit and people and planet which limited the amount of companies that I was willing to work with, but I felt better about myself. So that was good. Yeah. So that, so, so you ended up working in, I was going to say sector. Like I know what that means. Like <laughs> that works out. <laughs> you ended up working in that world as sector for, for like for 15 years. Is that what you said? I'm exactly. guessing it shifted. And so, well, yeah. And then you're saying you sort of woke up a little bit or yeah, became disillusioned perhaps about what some things that were happening, got clear on what you wanted. So you switched and became, you know, figured out a way to do it your way or with maybe more integrity that you were after, after learning lots of things that I'm sure was not there. But so then what transitioned you out of that totally? So I had you know, I kind of got this job in New York. I was working for a consulting firm. Eventually, I got engaged, convinced my husband that when we were married, we only needed one visa to move back to the UK, and then the other person could be the dependent. So in 2008, after we got married, we moved together to the UK, jobless. And then I got a job for a bank, a big bank, doing their kind of corporate responsibility, and then another big company. Um, and then in the meantime, my husband had set up a consulting firm that was trying to do all of this in a different way. So would, would it be possible to actually consult to companies, people, and nonprofits on philanthropy and impact and do it in a way that was really about living our values and communicating better and making a difference for the world? So 
as these things sometimes happen, he was like the face of the company setting it up. I uh, He set up the company and two weeks later, I found out I was having twins. So this all like happened at the same time. So on my maternity leave, I'm like filing the taxes and doing all the operation work. And I would consult on some clients as well when I had time, but I was still working like a big corporate job once I went back from maternity leave to kind of just like be the steady income for the family. Um, and eventually the company grew enough that it made sense for me to come on full time. I took over as CEO in 2017. And so in 2019, when you find me at the very beginning of my book, my what if year, I'm like, I've done it. Like I did all the things I thought little fifth grade Alicia like wanted to do. Like I was married. I had a nice house. I had beautiful children, a really cute French bulldog with like a face for Instagram. I was CEO of a company. I was my own boss. So I was like setting my own schedule and you know, doing like amazing shit. I went to the World Economic Forum in 2019. I was going to meetings at Buckingham Palace. Like I was doing everything, everything, everything. And I found myself there and I was very unhappy and I could not figure out why because I did it. I did the stuff. I did all the things on my checklist. And when I got to that point when I should have been relaxing, all I wanted to do was like pack up and leave everybody and everything and like get the hell out of there because I felt really stuck. I think I was probably a little bit depressed. I think I was definitely having this like professional reconciliation about the job I was doing and if it really mattered. And I kept trying all these like small things to jolt me out of this feeling of unhappiness. And I just, I was just there. I was like living, I was sitting in it. Um, and so I had this idea that was like a pretty unorthodox idea, which was uh, to go and take go back and retrace all the what-ifs from my past to take unpaid internships at the jobs I wanted to do when I was a kid and never did. Marine biology was on there, along with magazine journalism, musical theater, because I've always loved musicals and kind of never did anything with that creative side, art history, which I almost did and then didn't go and do. And take this, take these like mini sabbaticals from my job, go do these internships, have this really meaningful eat, pray, love, but like working experience and then come back. And I was going to be fine. That was going to like be the thing I needed to refresh me. And I mentioned it to a couple of friends of mine and they were like, why the hell don't you do this? You should go and do this. Nothing is stopping you. Why don't you do it? So, well, that was the first part. Then I waited nine months before I like got up the guts to actually think about doing it. Um, but eventually that was the, that was the plan. That was my big 2020 life plan. And what, and I'm guessing, was your husband supportive from the start of the idea or did it take? It took him some time. He is incredibly supportive. I would say it is one of his most wonderful qualities. But, you know, because we had started this business, just, it's together, his business too. <laughs> because we had started this business together and then, you know, me coming on full time meant that he could go off and do other things that he wanted to chase professionally. And so it was really hard for him to hear that I was not happy because I think he felt partly responsible. And I think he felt like I've built all this stuff for us. And, you know, we built it together, but certainly for the first few years when the twins were little, you know, he was doing the lion's share of the work. And I think he really felt torn. He wanted to support me. He knew he could see that I was unhappy, but also he felt like 
why isn't this enough? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. Why isn't? And I get enough? when you said too, where you felt like this responsibility, where it's like, well, no, of course he's not responsible. But I think that that's what, not necessarily all men, but like, yeah, partners and stuff. It's like, oh no, like it can feel as if, oh no, if you're not happy or that, like, especially if, yeah, he's like, we built this amazing business that you wanted, and we have all the things in that, like, so it does sort of feel like this, like, it it almost feels maybe like a slight on them when it's not, but like. <sighs> But we have all this, but we've built this, but blah, blah, blah. So it's like not even, it's not something you can really take personally. It's like, that's our human emotional brain of like, oh. Trisha here. I don't know about you, but I can get overwhelmed when making decisions about which products to purchase, especially for things like my skin and my hair. Because of course I want it to feel good and look great. And there's so many brands out there. I am so honored that I get to work with Blissoma. I chased them down, to be honest. To be honest, I love their products so much that I was like, I want to share your products. So that's the reality of how this went. So Blissoma skincare is authentic green beauty. So many brands just slap green clean on there and they aren't. It's something that's not regulated in the USA. So it's authentic green beauty with cutting edge chemistry. It meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. All their products are made in-house, like in small batches. They are really caring about what they're putting in the products and their customers. They understand what it's like to have these skin sensitivities and painful skin problems even. And so they create products that create a balance within the skin and the body. Uh, honestly, not only do I feel an immediate difference with, or not, I feel, that's the thing. I feel the difference, not just can I see the difference. And feeling is so different. Like it feels good to put the products on. I don't even want to put makeup on. I don't even want to put my tinted sunscreen moisturizer on. And I am in my forties and I don't use Botox or any of that stuff. No, no problem. If you do, I don't. And I'm still proud to have my naked skin out in the world because of the Blissoma skincare products. So go check them out. You can use my code CLAIMIT20 for 20% off anything in the moisturizer category. The one I use is the Lift Intelligent Energy Cream, which for years I've only used serums and oils. And this moisturizer, I really, truly love. I also love their free gel cleanser, um, their toners the Aura Phyto Brightening Serum, and the oil I love is the Restore Omega Oil. Go check their products out. I promise you, you will love them. Go to blissoma.com and use code CLAIMIT20 on anything in the moisturizer category. And I mean, even I felt so guilty. I felt guilty that I was feeling this way. I was so mad at myself for not being able to just like suck it up and do it. Like that's what I always did. I was good at doing that. You know, who cares if I wasn't happy? Who cares if I felt like I needed to do something else? I had a long time of sitting and thinking about this and feeling like it was such a stupid idea. And how dare I think that prioritizing what I want and this like silly, crazy idea was more important than creating that stability for my family, making sure the company was running as it needs to, you know, all of those things that felt like they were more important than me and what I needed and wanted for my mental health, my emotional health, and, you know, what I saw for my future. 
Did um I make up because I see this all the time. Did you like struggle with too? Like, especially like, yeah, I do have like everything that I thought I wanted. So I like I shouldn't feel this way. So I shouldn't even be able to consider do anything else. Like I just need to snap out of this. Like, what am I doing? Like, you know, like sort of thing. It's like we act like, but no, if you look at the, this is the paper and the this. And so I have everything or I have it better than so many people. So how dare I be unhappy? How dare I be depressed? How dare I want more of something I don't even know what I want? Like I felt that for so long. And in fact, I think the only reason I even mentioned it to my friends who were really encouraging was because we had been like drinking martinis all night. And by like the fourth martini, I was like, you know what I really want to do? So it was, yeah, I felt guilty throughout. And then even after I decided to do it and like started moving the pieces on the chessboard to actually be able to do it, I still felt guilty. I felt guilty when I went off to New York to do my first internship and my daughter would FaceTime me and she had a fight with her friend and she you know, couldn't understand why I wasn't there to give her a hug and support her and help her figure it out. And what did I say? I had to go in five minutes because it was, you know, five hours earlier in New York time. And I was in the middle of an internship. I was like hands full of coffee with people that I was bringing back for people. So yeah, I mean, I still, I still sometimes feel guilty. <laughs> I hate feeling guilty. It's not an emotion I think has a lot of purpose. I feel like it is I wish I did not feel guilty, but I did feel guilty. I felt like it was not my place with everything I had given, all the advantages I had been given, how hard my parents worked to get me where I needed to go, to be able to provide me an education from a place like Harvard without any student debt. I mean, they worked their asses off to be able to do that for me. That was not something that you know was just like handed to them, but they worked so hard to be able to do that for me and for my brothers. And I felt like I owed I owed it to them to be happy. So I had a lot of these feelings, mostly at like two o'clock in the morning, I'd be up, my head like spinning into a million different places and not wanting to talk to anybody about it, not wanting to share that for fear that people would be like, yeah, you should, you should actually feel really guilty. You should be happy with what you have and you should just suck it up. That's not the answer I wanted to hear. But I had these two amazing friends supporting me. Eventually, my husband, Carlos, came around. And then everyone got kind of excited by it. They were like, yeah, do this. You're about to turn 40. Like, make this happen. Let's let this be like the 40-year-old intern. That was the name of the prod, like my code name for the project. was. So, okay. So it was like a long time of like percolating, figuring it out. Is this, are we going to do this? And so then you were like 2020 was supposed to be. 2020 was the year. <laughs> but then 2020 turned out. But then 2020 was 2020. So I mean, I spent I spent a long time dealing with the like, what are the emotional ramifications of doing this, and how could I possibly? And then I spent another long period of time trying to get people to give me these. Well, that's what I was about to like, say. Like, it's a great idea, but then yeah, like, how did you actually make it happen? Because it sounds like an amazing idea. But people are like, probably like, no, we don't want. You. They probably think like, are you yeah. even going to be like, committed? Who the hell are you? Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> this is just great. You're doing something for fun. You're fun, so you might show up in two days in, and be like, never mind, and then they're stuck or like, no, they want some young person they can manipulate because they have their whole Precisely. lives. <laughs> and then, exactly. Then that person's gonna and come gonna in work on their the way up. conveyor belt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I spent so much time. I like redid my resume. I made it so nice. I wrote this 
what I thought was an amazing cover letter, you know, talking about how I wanted to have this experience, how I was literally willing to do anything they needed done. I did not need to be paid because I was, you know, planning this in my life. I didn't need them to pay me. Like, please, 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 for the love of God, hire me. And nobody wrote me back for so long. In the end, I had two internships lined up at the very beginning when 2020 started, I had two internships lined up. One was going to be in New York shadowing a, a Broadway and an off-Broadway musical that were going to be opening in the spring. And completely through a connection, like a friend of mine's dad who knew these directors, and they didn't even they didn't have anything for me to do. They were like, just come and see if you can make yourself useful. I was like, yes, perfect. That's it. That's all I need. <laughs> and I had an internship lined up at Christie's, the auction house, which you know, they have like a standard work experience program that I think is probably mostly for like children of clients or children of whoever. And I knew this woman who knew somebody at Christie's and she put in a good word for me. I mean, ultimately everything I ended up doing was because I had people that were willing to vouch for me and they knew me and they knew I was going to take it seriously and do a good job and that I wasn't just in it to like, you know, take a bunch of selfies and myself in front of a bunch of priceless works of art and then like go do something else that I really you know, I think they believed me, they trusted me. And so I had these two firmly lined up and I got on a plane to New York on February 29th, 2020 to go like live out my wildest fantasy of sitting in on all of these rehearsals for musicals. And then the world shut down like two and weeks later. And then the later. world shut down. Or during yeah. that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, you know, stuff was already starting to happen before I left. And Italy had gone into a lockdown. It's like starting to spread outside of China where we had originally just assumed it had all been contained. And I did have a conversation with my husband like shortly before I left being like, should I not go? Please say, please say I should go. 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 Yeah, no, you should go, babe. Okay, good. Thank God. I was so, I was like so laser focused on this project being like the solution to all of my problems that I really ignored so many of the signs. And even progressively as like day by day, things were kind of starting to fall apart and it was becoming much clearer, you know, like the first day of rehearsals, everything is normal. And by the second day, there's hand sanitizer everywhere you go. And by the third day, they're briefing the cast on new cleaning procedures. You know, I think we really thought we were going to like stave off everything for so long. And I was very, very happy to believe that because I so desperately wanted to be there, wanted to be doing this, that my poor husband in London with the kids, like panic buying black beans and coffee and like weird things that we never end up using during lockdown, you know, he was like freaking out. And I was like, no, 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 it's not going to blow over. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. It's like, they can't stop flights and close borders. That's not going to happen. Oh, it's funny now, but it was not funny back then. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I thought it was just like, oh, okay, so like we're going to stay home for like a week or two? Like that, I that's what was about. <laughs> same, same. Okay, that's so weird. I can't believe they're going to have us stay home for a week or two. And then like, I, yeah, no I actually wrote a letter, there was a like a letter that went out after they closed schools in the UK from my children's uh, headmistress. And it said you know, we should be prepared to be doing virtual education through the end of April or something like that, which was like a month away. 
And I was like, why? I wrote back to her. I was like, why are you freaking people out? This is only a two-week lockdown. Then we're all going back to normal. Like, like this is this is just like, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater. I was like, you can't possibly tell me I have to homeschool my children for a whole month. Meanwhile, then that lasted for much longer. So what happened so, then? I'm assuming you end up going back home or were you able to get So, you know, I was I was luckily able to get home. I mean, it was like quite dramatic. I won't spoil it for those of you who want to read about it in the book, but um, you know, things were happening so quickly and it was sort of I like went into a show and everything was fine and at the intermission I checked my phone and they had announced they were canceling all flights from Europe and they were closing the borders and so I had to go home obviously, you know, to be with my family the next day. And, you know, two hours before I left for the airport, I was like doing some final internship tasks. And then they announced that they were closing all Broadway theaters and that Broadway was going to be dark, which was, you know, if you don't follow musical theater, it had never happened before. I think that it had been closed for, you know, I think Broadway only took two days off after 9-11, like it was closed for two days. And I think the longest it had ever closed down before was maybe a couple of weeks. So the idea that this was eventually going to last 18 months, you know, was unheard of. So that just all happened in real time. I got on a plane that night and I rushed back to the UK and we packed up the kids and the dog and this crazy suitcase full of black beans that my husband had packed. And we uh, went up to the Isle of Skye, which is a very remote rural part of Scotland. We had like a small holiday cottage there for a while before. And we thought, well, we'll just wait this out here because I was still convinced I was going to go back to New York. I was like already planning to go back for the openings of these shows, which I was certain was going to be like six weeks away, you know. So since... I'm guessing that did not happen <laughs> with the way the, the world went. Did you eventually like get to do more internships or yeah, like I did. The book would have been so short if I didn't. So yes, I did somehow against all odds. I managed to complete three more internships. So uh, I did a virtual internship during the first lockdown. I worked for a retro dance and fitness company that does like retro fitness and they were pivoting to do online fitness. And so I was helping out with kind of all of those things. This was just a friend of mine, Frankie, she didn't have any employees. And so she was extremely grateful for my offer of support. And so I did that from my living room. And I so, did, but, so that's like you know. somewhat different, right? Doing it from your living room at home, but you are great. You're doing something different and you're helping people. But like, did that somewhat did that like scratch, like, you know, help scratch that itch or whatever, even though it was like not what you would really imagine, like sort of immersing yourself in some other world? Yeah. When I got back from New York and we were just home with nothing else to do and the kids were home from school and everybody was so scared and freaking out and I was just baking and then like eating everything I was baking. And but I was still really in denial. I had this internship lined up at Christie's. It was going to happen in May 2020. And I still, against all hope, was like holding out belief that that was still going to happen. And I got an email from them uh, in kind of early April, basically being like, yeah, we're not going back into the office anytime soon. We're Unfortunately, we're going to have to postpone this. Maybe we're going to have to indefinitely postpone it. And I was very – that really like sent me into a deep – cinnamon bun baking <laughs> face of <laughs> because 
you know, I had done, I felt like I had moved mountains to make it possible to be able to do this. And then that's it. It was like all snatched away from me. And obviously there were a lot worse things going on. People were getting sick, people were dying. And, you know, there were bigger things like, when am I going to get to go back to the US and see my family again? Like, you know, big, big, big questions. But I was so, so committed to this project and so convinced it was the thing I needed that shortly after I got that email, I started looking for other internships. And I basically said, I'm not going to be picky. And I thought about it. I was like, what could I possibly do? You know, what I I had a long list that I had made for myself like early, you know, when I had been thinking about this of all the jobs that I was interested in. Like I couldn't do marine biology because nobody was, those were all, you know, anything that involved like going somewhere, art was out, marine biology was out, working for a restaurant or hotel was completely out. But I had this friend who had started this company and she, you know, before I had left for New York, I had told her about my idea and she was like, oh, babe, you should come intern for me. And I was like, haha, yeah, that'd be fun. And, you know, it was like, it's this or nothing. And I've always been curious about fitness. I've always been like a fitness fad nut, you know, like always done all the different things. There's no class that I would not try at least once. And it just seemed like a way to continue with the momentum of the project still feel like I was doing something different, even if I was doing it from my living room. And truly it saved me during that first lockdown. Like I do not know what I would have done if I had not gone ahead and done that because physically I was forced to get up and do all of these exercise classes, which (laughs) made me feel a sheer endorphin rush of it. You know, one of my tasks was trying out classes at her competitor studios. So, you know, and, and all, you know, people that were doing virtual fitness, everyone's like, yeah, that time was pretty bananas. And new, you know, people were just like figuring out Peloton, but there was just every fitness studio people were trying to. Yeah, they'd be just like, here's a Zoom link, I guess. And like, yeah, people were just like doing exactly. Yeah, they didn't have systems in place. It was just like, here, (laughs) practice with. Originally, she was doing it on Instagram. Like she was doing Instagram live fitness classes and taking donations via PayPal. And then she kind of moved into a platform. But so one of my jobs was like figuring out what all of these other companies were doing. You know, I had this spreadsheet and I would list out like how much do they charge for their classes? You know, how often do they run them? What platform are they using? And then I would do the classes and review them because there was a huge difference in like production value in terms of what the quality was of a lot of these classes. So I was doing, I did this thing called Voga, which was like voguing yoga. What I, I need to know more about voguing class. yoga. <laughs> Voga is Voga was not not my favorite. I'm like imagining myself like okay, I'm doing yoga and then like okay, so I'm like in warrior one and then I like strike a pose like what? You are imagining that perfectly. That is exactly what Voga is. That is exactly what it is. It's a it's a real thing that Amazing. people do. You know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I did some like some Australian fit like Barbie fitness aerobics class. I did, uh, oh, I just did everything. The weirder, the better because, you know, I felt like one, it was like going the extra mile for my research. I, you know, it was important to kind of see what people were doing and actually experience the classes. And also, you know, I didn't have anywhere else to be. So (laughs) it was a really good distraction, but I just really feel like having that get me through that kind of first lockdown when we really were not allowed to leave the house and Everything was so scary, was so I just credit that with so much, even though I don't think I'm gonna be a professional fitness anything. Uh, it was ju- it just meant so much to me to be able to have that every day to know that I was gonna get out of bed and that was something I was gonna do. I makeup, did it give you like a sense of purpose? 
I, I because mean, you're, I mean, especially to like, you're like, great, I have something to do to occupy time, but also like you're doing it for your friend or this person, you know, like it is a friend, but like you volunteer somewhere. It's like, great, you're committed to supporting them, whatever. So it's like a bigger than you, even if you're like, oh, I'm just taking, I'm taking <laughs> the most random road classes, but it is, it's like for a purpose that's bigger than you. Do you know what it was? I think even, I mean, that was definitely part of it. Even more than that, I felt like as soon as lockdown started, I was just like a support system for everybody else in my life, right? So I was teach. I was my husband, you know, bless him, did not have the patience to do homeschool, and you know he would get very frustrated with the with the kids, and he was kind of managing all these other fires happening at his other businesses that he had started, and so I was teacher. So I was, you know, I had a quote unquote purpose, like not to let my children fail out of school at the age of eight, but you know that was all about them and keeping them safe. And then, you know, a lot of emotional support for my husband and for my family and just being there. That is like part of my personality. I was a cheerleader for 10 years growing up. Like I am the hype person and the rah-rah person. I was doing that for everybody in my life. I was jumping back into our business to support the team and make sure we were going to be okay financially and figure out how everybody was going to transition to working online. So I had all of these things that were taking up my time and ostensibly would make me feel like I had a purpose. But the internship was the only thing that I was doing for me, like the only thing that was just about me. It wasn't about doing something that I was now obligated to do because the whole world had shut down. It was just, you know, it was a joy. And I was absolutely, you know, it's not putting words in Frankie's mouth, Frankie, who owns Retro Glow Studios, to say that I was a big help to her, you know, and it was nice for her to have someone to work with because she had been on her own. And so, um, you know, she had a coworker basically supporting this time. And I had a lot of experience starting a business. So I could also help her in different ways than a typical intern would have been able to. But, you know, for, for me, it was just this, like, it didn't feel like work. It didn't feel like a responsibility. It didn't feel like an obligation or something I had to do. I was just doing it for myself. And that was really, I feel like the only thing I had truly to myself for that entire period. Now they said that I'm wondering, so like pre pandemic, when you had been starting to get these inklings of having this, like, what if you're and stuff like that in your, I have all the things that I thought I wanted life. Were you doing things back then that were like purely for you? I mean, no, not, not nearly enough, frankly, I think. So, you know, I think part of it that I've come to realize now and having time to reflect on it and having written a whole book about it where like writing a memoir is a lot of, but why did you feel this way? But how did you feel this way? But explain, you know, I had to go deep. It was like free therapy writing the book in a really fantastic way. But yes, like I felt like I had gotten to this point in my life where for years I was just, I, I was like a product of all of my obligations and all of the things I meant to other people, right? Like I was mom in one setting and I was CEO in another setting and I was wife and I was daughter and I was volunteering for freaking everything. I was like the social chair and on the school parent council for the school. And I had set up a uh, social enterprise, like an app that was focused on sustainable fashion. And, you know, I was, I was, I like kept myself really, really busy because I thought that being busy was being happy. And everything about me was like defined in relation to other people, what they needed and wanted from me. And I really think a big part of why I did take this like slightly radical step to do this is because I just felt like if I didn't, I was going to crack. Like I felt like I needed a break from all of it. I needed a break from responsibilities at work. I needed a break from 
you know, like go, going away to New York for, you know, leaving to New York and being away from my kids for two weeks was a ton of pressure on my husband. But oh my God, I was like, without my kids for two weeks, I love them, but it was amazing. And I just, I felt like I needed that space. And that is definitely something that I did not realize so much at the time, but that I have certainly come to see also now that my life is completely different from what it was before I started this journey. So, yeah. So we can read the book to like learn more about the internships and the journey. No, spoilers. No, just kidding. I'll tell you. I can <laughs> no, uh, but I was, but also like, um, yeah, did you, and you also, did you set off, do you have any, any idea like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'll write about it. Or like, where did that idea of like, maybe I could put this in a book come from? It was an offhanded comment made by one of my friends that I was with on that fateful weekend when I was like, with telling too many about martinis. this idea. One of them just said, <laughs> "Not yep, too many." Excuse me for was like, passing judgment for the many martinis. Just enough, just excuse enough martinis. Me. Yeah, just like, enough martinis. For you enjoying your life with your martinis that finally made you. Really well, sort of had, listen, it probably was too many <laughs> martinis. I'm not gonna lie. We came down to breakfast that next morning, like sunglasses <laughs> on, you know like eat, like loading up our plate with like fried food, just being like, oh, we're too old for this. But in the, in the light of day, you know, we kind of brought back this conversation and my friend Laura said, you know, if you really want to do this, my dad works in the theater. Maybe he can get you like some opportunities. And my friend Rebecca said, yeah, you should write a book about it. And I was like, ha ha ha. Okay. This also, why don't I just like move to Hawaii and open a shrimp shack on the beach? Like that was like the equivalent basically. I was like, obviously this is something that will never, ever happen. But as I got further along and started to take the internship idea more seriously, I found that the book was like a very convenient excuse. So if I said to people, I can't work on this project or I'm resigning from the school parent council because I'm going off for a year to do four or five internships in the dream jobs of my childhood because I feel a need to like scratch this itch of mine, they were like, what's wrong with you? But if I said I was doing that and I said I was writing a book about it, that felt to people like, oh, that's very normal. Like that's a very normal thing that somebody would do. I think this idea that like, you know, I had a I had a project at the end of it or like something was going to be the result of it seemed much more acceptable to people. And, you know, I had, the idea was like in the back of my head, but mostly I knew I wanted to like journal this experience. I've always been like a big journaler. Growing up, I have like the most embarrassing and wonderful journals from my childhood and teenage years. And so, you know, and I knew that this was going to be like a kind of extraordinary moment in my life to be able to do this. And then when COVID happened, I knew it was going to be like an extraordinary moment in human history that I would one day want to be able to like tell my grandkids like, oh, you can read my diary of what I was doing during COVID. Turns out not much. I was baking a lot and doing aerobics in front of my TV. But so I, I kind of took very, very diligent notes and I started writing about it. And the more I wrote about it, the more I enjoyed writing about it. And so when I finished each internship, I would write it into, I kind of take my journal notes and my entries and kind of put it into a story. And I did that for each of the four internships I ended up doing. And then when I got to the end, I was like, okay, my project is over. And also I think this could be a book with a narrative structure. So then I went back and rewrote everything because I was like, oh, now I understand what the beginning means because I know what's happening at the end. Because at the beginning, I didn't know how this was going to end up. Maybe I was going to go back to my old job. That's what I thought. Like, was yeah, you were just happen. taking a year. Look Maybe. at this cool year I had. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had this great year and then everything goes back to normal. 
And then, of course, nothing was normal. And then it was, will I go do another job in one of these fields? Like, what's going to happen? And so I eventually, like, wrote enough words on a page and made a narrative structure to the point that it was, like, a draft of a book. And I started sending it out to agents. But really, everything that has happened since, the fact that it's, like, an actual book that's sitting here on my table has been totally surreal. I could not... At one point, I was just like, it would be so amazing if I could self-publish this on Amazon and share it with all of my friends and family. Like, that would be the dream. And sure, like, you know, why not reach big and try to get an agent and do this, that, and the other? But I, I never really expected it to happen. So all of this that's come since has just been like gravy. It's been like, all right, perfect. Like, every single thing is like a new surprise and a joyful surprise because – I never in my wildest dreams thought that this was where this whole project was going to end up. Trisha here just dropping in to give you a couple of reminders of ways that I am here to support you besides this podcast. One, go get my book, F the Shoulds, do the once.com will take you to all the places you can order it. And if you already have it, you can go there and still get some bonuses. To my product line, shop.yourjoyologist.com. I am starting to close the shop. So go there now and claim some empowering products before they are gone. Three, I have a from the heart community that is only $12 a month, less if you do annual, over on Substack, where I send out four to five written and or audio posts every week that are straight from my heart. These are much deeper than social media posts and you can interact with them. It's an amazing way to get my support for only $12 a month. So go to trishahuffman.substack.com backslash subscribe. All the links will be in the notes. And if you know you're in that place where you are done feeling the way you're feeling, that you keep saying that you're going to make shifts in your life and you aren't doing it, where you really know that you want to feel more, that you want to show up more for yourself, for others. Maybe you have a vision inside of you. Send me a message at underscore Trisha Huffman. I have spots in both my group coaching container and in my one-on-one work. And my work truly does last a lifetime. It has an impact, not just for the time that we work with me, but it ends up rewiring your brain and your heart so you have deep self-trust and alignment moving forward. All right, let's get back to the podcast. I, I want to get back to like, yeah, what, what, where is your life now or the learn? But I also want to say like how cool so you see, yeah, like you said, oh, maybe I'll just even self-publish whatever. So this is, is this Zibby book's first book that they're publishing? So yes, that's I am huge. And so how book. did that end up happening? I mean, Zibby is just this incredible person. She's so, she like really, really cares about building community. Like she's one of those people that just deeply cares about other people and will, you know, she's so busy and she will go out of her way to kind of find and support and champion others. And so I so I had written enough words for a book. I was thinking of taking it out to different agents. I called an old boss of mine who I, when I was a teenager I worked at a bookstore in Miami growing up. And I called the owner of the bookstore who I had been in touch with because we stayed in touch. I babysat his kids for many years, like traumatized them completely. Um 
One of them actually works for Zibby now, which is like the best story. And it is impossible. It's so hard for me not to say on every call with her, like, do you remember when I used to babysit you? But that's obviously very embarrassing for her because she's like a young professional and I'm just old, but I think it's hilarious that that is the case. So I called him up and I was like, you know, can you give me some advice? Like, what do I do with this? And he's like, look, it sounds great. And I'm here to support you in whatever you need. But the fact is that like a debut book, a memoir, and, you know, you don't really have like, you're not famous. Like you don't have a platform of a bunch of people following you that want to know everything's happening. He was like, it's a tough sell. But one thing you could do is start, you know, taking short pieces either from the book or you could write something new and try to get some publications under your belt because that will make a better case for you when you're trying to get the whole project published. So among all of the places I was looking, I came across Moms Don't Have Time to Write, which was the original incarnation of Zibby's um, like essay site and blog. And I found Zibby on Instagram and I was like immediately riveted by her personal story. And she's so open on, on Instagram and just really vulnerable with people. And she makes it feel like you know her, even if you don't know her and it's easy to connect. So I submitted an article to her. It was an essay um, about, it was kind of taken from what is now the fitness section of the book. So about what fitness meant to me kind of in during the lockdown period and doing this internship. And she wrote me back immediately and she was like, can we get on a Zoom? I love this essay. I'm going to publish it, but I want to hear about you. Like, what wow. are you doing? Who are you? So we got on a Zoom in the middle of, you know, still we were like deep, deep pandemic. And I told her what I had done. I told her that I had written about it. She offered to introduce me to a bunch of agents and to help in whatever way she could. And we kind of stayed in touch. I submitted another essay to her that she published about something different. And in the meantime, I did find my agent after cold querying 41 different agents. And we kind of got the manuscript in better shape with her guidance and got, we're getting it ready to go out to publishers. And in July, it was like the middle of July, 2021, I got a two-line email from Zibby that said, have you sold your book yet? I think I'm going to start my own publishing company and I want to publish your book. And I was like, mm, is someone trolling me? Like, this can't possibly be real. Wow. <laughs> And so it was like a Cinderella story. We got on the phone. She was like, I don't have a team. I don't have a name. I don't, I just have an idea, but don't sell your book because I think we should do this together and I want to publish your book and I think it would be perfect for the brand. So we held back. I didn't submit my manuscript anywhere else. We kind of waited for her to get, line up the business ducks in a row that she needed to do. And then I signed with Wow. In, Very yeah. cool. I love that story. Um, yeah, I love her too and all that she continues to create. So cool. Okay, now I want to get so yeah, so what is your life now? So you set off on this journey and to write a book about it and you didn't know, will I just go back to life and that? I'm sure you learned a million bajillion lessons that are likely <laughs> in the book and also a million more that are not. <laughs> I learned so, so, so much. I learned a lot of I learned a lot about the individual fields that I was working in uh, because I made a ton of mistakes throughout all of my internships. And I was from mediocre to bad at them. Like really the final internship I did, which was in a hotel and restaurant, I was, I was appallingly bad at absolutely everything I did. Um, but one of the really big things that I learned from the experience was that I am a person who has always loved learning. And I had gotten to a point in my life where I had just stopped learning new things. And I had stopped 
pushing myself into areas that made me feel uncomfortable or that I didn't think I was going to be good at because I was afraid. I was afraid of failing. And so I had just, I was just kind of staying in the same place. And so I kind of resolved to whatever I was going to do next to make sure that I was doing the things that made me feel uncomfortable because that's what all of these internships were and they were so worth it. And also that I would pursue things that would enable me to keep learning that even if it wasn't going to be, you know, that everything I, everything I did, anything I took on that I was going to say, okay, am I going to learn something new from this? Like, is this going to be something that I have not done before or not tried? And so I have kind of moved the, uh, pieces around in my life to now have, just call it a portfolio career, which is easy to say that because I means I do no job full-time and I do like eight jobs part-time. But I have like a lot of different pieces to my life and my day. I have writing. So my What If Year comes out February 7th. There is a lot of promo. I'm going on book tour for like three weeks. I'm going to six different cities. I have basically planned like what would my dream book tour be if I like wanted to follow around an author? And that's what I've done. We're doing a dance class in New York. We're making Mardi Gras headdresses in New Orleans. We've got a concert in Houston and all of these like really super fun events. Um, I've got my podcast, which also is on, it's produced by Zibby Audio, which is Zibby's kind of podcast network. And that's called Quit Your Day Job. And so I interview people that work really fascinating jobs to find out what their life is like and what their jobs are like. And I'm working on this novel that one day I'm going to crack and it's going to be a book, hopefully, that somebody will want to read. And so I've got like that writing piece. And then uh, a couple of my internships ended up resulting in like paid opportunities. So um, I am still working for the art dealer that I uh, interned for. And that job is just like no two days are the same and never boring. You know, I do like a couple of days a week for him. And it's everything from building out the anti money laundering policy for his dealership to trying to figure out what year this particular Frida Kahlo painting left Mexico because if it left before a certain time, you can sell it. And if it left after a certain time, you can't sell it. And, you know, really just any number of things that involve me pushing myself and learning and being able to be involved in the art world, which I just think is fascinating. The hotel and restaurant that I um, interned in, they have never asked me to come back (laughs) and wait tables. But they did like my writing, so I rewrote a bunch of their texts for their website. And then last year was their 50th anniversary, and so they asked me to write, uh, to co-write with the head chef a cookbook Wow! last year, which is like, who would have thought I would ever write a cookbook? I mean, my mom cooks zero things. Like, I grew up eating all fast food. The idea that I wrote a cookbook, even if I didn't write the recipes for it, is still mind-boggling to me. And, you know, just kind of taking on different things that are coming my way and in a very uncharacteristic fashion, not planning too much, trying to be open to the opportunities that the universe is going to throw at me. You know, I've had the incredible gift through this book to meet so many fascinating people, doing jobs I never knew about, pursuing careers and paths I've never even heard of. And so there's like all these little mushrooms sprouting all around me. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do right now. I don't know how long it's going to be able to last, but I'm enjoying the ride at the moment. <laughs> Love it. Um, so I, I'm also curious, you know, when you, the whole, I want to be successful when you're young. So a big thing like I am often bringing up is how we oftentimes these things like, oh, yeah, I want to be successful. I, like I want to feel enough. Like 
this. It's that we're so often focused on what we think that looks like in some way, but we also like don't really know. It's like, yeah, usually like, yeah, you had all the things like really right before this what if year, like technically you would have probably, yeah, checked off all the things of successful, but we rarely think like, what does that feel like? What is feeling successful? What does it feel like to feel that I'm enough? Um, what is to be fulfilled? What is it not? What does it look like? What does it feel like? And so that's, I'm like a big thing of like tapping into that. Did you notice that shift happen? Like, can you now like feel into like, yeah, what does success like feel like to me? And it's, and also I'm wondering if success is even a term, like you're like, you know what I mean? Like if that's still like in your sphere in a way. That's such a good question. It's not like it is, it is, it's not completely gone. There will always be a part of me that strives to do well. Like there's a, there is a guiding feature of my life that I like never want to disappoint my parents. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. Like I do think that, you know, whether success is having this book be published or what, you know, there's always a part of me that still will value that, but I'm not chasing this like stereotypical definition of success anymore. And I am trying to focus more on, you know, exactly as you said, like how does it make me feel? And trying to live a life where I have these different experiences, where I pursue joyful things and happiness, you know, in as much of my life as possible because life is really short. And, you know, the world is looking not super fantastic at the moment. Like, you know, I have I have so many gifts. I have my amazing family. I have this career that's kind of fallen in my lap. I have these other things that I've done. And I just feel like I have almost a responsibility to live the best life I can possibly can in service of others and in service of myself to make the most of the time I have here. So that feeling is what I'm trying to chase after, not some piece of paper, not some title or some salary, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, we still have to pay the bills, so that stuff still has to happen. But, you know, I really – I'm trying to like really lean into the stuff that makes me feel uncomfortable and afraid and that makes me feel like, you know, that joy that you get after trying something that you thought was going to be really hard. And that's that's what I'm doing, you know. As long as it may last, I'm trying to enjoy and appreciate that. And I think that if I had to define success right now, I would really struggle Whereas, you know, I probably would have had the list. I would have told you what it meant, whether I was eight, whether I was 28, even up to the point I was 38. And so I love that I don't really know what that means. I think it's kind of great. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Cause it's even with like, even with the big things that, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I sold a book, but then you can go into like a comparison of like, oh, well, I don't know, because so and so got this deal or and that, blah, blah, blah. So I don't feel successful because this, like, there's so many ways that we can unfortunately, like, condition our success or even our joy or our worth. I don't know if I'm allowed to feel this by that, but it's like, again, it is a personal thing and it's, this is your life that you're here. Like, wow, I feel successful because I made choices that were aligned to me. I chose things that brought me joy. I, whatever. It's like, yeah, they can come from so many different things, but yeah, I think it's just so often we hear of successful and it's like, everything's lit up in gold or like, you know, it's like, it's like the flashing. Like. And I'm like living proof. I got there and I was like, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't what I was expecting. And also why, why aren't I enjoying it as much as I should? And so, 
Yeah. I just think the, you know, I want to leave the world a little bit better than I found it. And I want to try to have a good time along the way. That's kind of my guide. Love it. Life. Okay. I'm going to ask you the questions that I ask everybody real quick, which by the way, I feel like I rushed over that. I was like, what you just said was so beautiful. And then I was like, yes, and let's get to this. So I went and pause. I'm like, <laughs> let's do it. Let's um, do the speed round. I love what it. What are go-tos to raise your joy levels when you're not feeling so great? Singing. Mm. Love singing. Yet another thing that I did all through my childhood that I stopped doing for so many years and have recently rediscovered, I joined a choir here in Edinburgh where I live, and we performed Broadway songs at the Fringe Festival, and it was so much fun. And even just like I will go into the TV room in my house when nobody's home and put on some karaoke and just belt for nobody but myself. I did it yesterday. I went through all of Kiss Me Kate, the musical, which is like an old musical that I love. My house was empty. I was working from home and I literally just sang the whole thing through. And that is like big, big joy factor. The other thing that is a surprise is stand-up paddle boarding because I'm not very uh, – even though I enjoy trying different fitness trends, I'm like – I don't have great balance or coordination. <laughs> um, but I took up a wild swimming in like the winter when I was living in uh, in Sky because there was nothing else to do. And then I found paddleboarding and I love it. It's like so peaceful. I got a paddleboard for Christmas this year. So that's my new joy, joy love creation it. mechanism. Love it. And I love that you do karaoke. <laughs> Alone. Solo karaoke. Honestly, exactly. It's better if nobody's that's around. Amazing. That's amazing. Because, you know, like if you put on American Pie at a karaoke joint, people are like, oh God, that song is so long. But if you do it at home alone – it's eight minutes, purple rain. Do whatever you want. Like, and you, you just really let yourself go. Yourself. Yes. Yes. Love it. Um, okay. Ask people to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. Like maybe a natural way that you're wired. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. What is easiest for me is being in control of everything around me. <laughs> And what is best for me is having the grace and acceptance to know that I cannot control pretty much anything around me. <laughs> Love it. Love the awareness. Uh <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good. It's good to know your faults. <laughs> um, okay. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It. And that goes with what I said earlier about how so often we are chasing these feelings based on what we think they look like and, and not really noticing, well, what would that even feel like? So, and I feel like if we put that focus on, oh yeah, what would that feel like to be enough, to be fulfilled, whatever, then we really do have much closer access to claiming it just by even taking that moment with it. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? What am I claiming for myself right now? Do you know, I, 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 like I'll say it again, but it's acceptance, I think. I think that it has been very challenging for me as a very type A person for most of my life. Well, I'm still a type A person and a control freak to uh, know that I have to be able to move forward with things. I mean, COVID was a big part. Like that was such a big thing. It was such an unexpected thing that happened in this year where I had planned everything out so carefully to solve all my life problems. And honestly, I don't know that I would be here if it hadn't been for that lockdown. I don't know if I would have written the book if I didn't have all that time 
where, you know, I didn't have a lot to leave the house for. And I was so focused on making it happen. I don't, I don't know that any of this would have happened if that hadn't happened. So I'm trying to accept challenges and not feel like I have to be in charge of them and just sort of let them come and move forward in a way that I can without feeling like I have to be moving all the puppet strings. That's tough. I don't know if that's like a – does that make sense? Does that totally. Make sense? Yeah. It might make that no makes- sense. That's all right. I'm I'm a lot more coherent in my book. Don't worry. <laughs> no, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for you and this book and to see what what life brings you next because it sounds like things are just like yeah, like popping in there and like, oh, hey, how about over here? How about this? What about this? <laughs> Trisha, what a joy to talk to you and I look forward to having you on my podcast. So we can explore what a joyologist does on Quit Your Day Job. I would love that. Okay, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Go get the book, My What If Year. Uh, All places books are sold. And you can go to aliciafmiranda.com to learn more about her and what she's up to. For all things me, yourjoyologist.com. And um, you can find me mostly on Instagram and TikTok at underscore Trisha Huffman. The podcast itself is at Claim It Podcast. I love to hear from you. I love to see you share the podcast. And of course, make sure if you haven't yet to go get my book, F the Shoulds Do the Once. You can go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com to find all the places to get the book. And um hit me up, send me a DM, send me an email. If you are interested in really showing up for yourself true to you, to uncovering your own shoulds, which is is a process, and you might think, oh, I don't have any shoulds. Trust me, you do. And so you can truly, truly live an aligned and alive life and show up for your work and rest of your freaking life because your life isn't just about work with joy, alignment, freedom, and ease. And if you have a dream that you've been wanting to make happen, hit me up. I have work specially aligned to supporting you to make your vision become your reality. All right. I'm sending you so much love. And the last question I want to ask you is, what are you claiming right now for yourself?